Welcome to the American Citizens Abroad podcast. I'm Michelle, and today I'm chatting with Tim Leckel, writer, author, editor, publisher, and an American living in Mexico. Welcome, Tim. Thanks for joining us today. Good to be with you. Thanks for having me. Currently, you're located in Mexico. How long have you lived there, and what brought you there? So, yeah, I live in a highlands town. It's at 6,500 feet called Guanajuato. It's a UNESCO World Heritage City. And I've been living here probably five years in all, but off and on for 10. So it's kind of been split up a few times because I had a daughter in school. But this time we've been here since the end of 2018. And then we hold up here during the pandemic. So it's been a few years on this run. We moved here because it's easy. Mexico has a lot of flight connections. It's fairly reasonable from the U.S. We still had family, aging parents, all of that back home. So we didn't really want to move to the other side of the world. And I'm also still working, so I wanted to stay in the relatively close time zone. That's easier for Americans to go to Latin America than to go Thailand or somewhere and be 12 hours off from everybody you need to talk to. Could you tell us about your journey as an American expat? Well, I was traveling the world as a backpacker when I was young, and I taught English with my now wife. She was with me. We taught English in Turkey for about five or six months, and we taught in South Korea for more than a year. We were on a full-blown contract there. We had that experience not just of moving from place to place, but also actually living in a culture and getting to know people and getting to know how things work. And we really liked that experience, and we wanted to have that experience with our daughter. But we wanted to wait until she would at least get something out of it. So when she was 10, we moved abroad with her, and she did a year of elementary school in Mexico, and then later she did two years of middle school in Mexico. And then we went back to the U.S. for her to finish high school. So it was kind of an organic process. I'm a travel writer. I work out of my laptop. I can work pretty much anywhere my business didn't miss a beat when we moved. And so that part was easy. Obviously, there's lots of other adjustments. So we've gone back and forth. We sort of had a foot in both places for a lot of those years. But I consider Mexico my home base, and we own our house here. As you said, you're an avid writer, having written three travel books and another that was co-authored with Rob Sangster. Let's chat about your book, A Better Life for Half the Price. Where did you find the 50-plus expats who share their stories and tips? And do you think that you'll need to print a third post-pandemic edition to adapt for how the world has changed? This one came out at the end of 2020, so I actually wrote it during the pandemic. I did have a pretty good sense of where things were headed on that. And the big advantage of that was I was really able to get a hold of people quite easily because everyone was holed up at home and had plenty of time on their hands. I interviewed people from every country that's featured in the book and was able to track expats down pretty easily by Zoom or Skype or whatever. So that was uh, kind of a blessing in disguise. I also had more time on my hands because the travel business was not doing so great for a while there. And so I was able to just knock out the chapters pretty quickly as opposed to normally when I would have my normal job going. And just a shout out to Rob Sangster. I don't talk to him very often anymore. We co-wrote a book together, but he's actually a pretty successful novelist in Canada. So if you ever see his name on Amazon, he writes some really good page turners. <laughs> You're also president of Al Centro Media, a web publishing company and founder of Perceptive Travel, which is an online travel magazine. 
Could you tell us more about these companies and have you had to pivot or adapt to the new normal of the pandemic? So I started these different sites over different periods. The first one I started in 2003. So I'm one of the old guard. I was one of the first travel bloggers and I'm one of the longest running ones at this point. That was when I started the Cheapest Destinations blog. And it was really just a way to publicize my book, The World's Cheapest Destinations, which was coming out in its first edition. And now it's in its fifth. So this is quite a while. Over the years, I started other sites. So I started Perceptive Travel in 2006, and it was sort of to give a home to narrative travel writing, which I could already see fading away because a lot of magazines were starting to go out of business even back in the 2000s. It's gotten worse over the years, of course. I wanted to give a home to good narrative travel writing, the kind of writing that ends up in books and anthologies and wins awards and all of that. And it's all from published book authors. I started a few more after that, one that I ended up selling that was about travel gear, one about travel in Latin America. I have a site called Hotel Scoop that's all hotel reviews. I've sort of diversified over time. It's all been travel related. I have one that's just for travel writers, just an insider website. Basically, I built up this portfolio in this media company, which has kind of helped me hedge my bets. I guess if one area turns down, then another one often makes up for it. But of course, this pandemic killed travel in general around the world for every kind of website for a while there, but it didn't last. Thankfully, there were about three months there that were really hairy. Then domestic travel started coming back all over the world and people still needed to research travel information on their own country. And slowly but surely things started climbing back. I don't think most of us are back to where we were in 2019, but we're at least getting by and the numbers are decent. So some people are actually getting more traffic than they ever did if they write about road trips or RV travel, or they have a local site about their own city. Those have tended to do quite well. I wrote a lot about international travel, which is obviously not where it used to be. <laughs> do you consider yourself a digital nomad? No, mostly because I've got this home base that I keep coming back to. And I'm probably going to fit that definition next year if I get to do all the things we've been planning the last few years that we've had to postpone. Because now I'm an empty nester. My daughter actually graduated college and is off on her own. So we are planning in 2023 now to go live for three months in a country and then move on to the next one and live for three months or whatever the visa will allow, sometimes less, sometimes more. We won't do that permanently on the road, but we'll probably go out and back a few times, maybe go to Europe for six months, then come home for a while, then go to Asia for six months. We'll see. I mean, we do go out a lot now on trips that are a month long because we can work from our laptops. And so we just spent a month in Mazatlan, for instance, we did a home exchange with someone. In that sense, I'm kind of nomadic. I don't live out of a backpack. I've done that before in my life and it has its pros and cons. I don't want to be on the move all the time because it's just a lot harder to get work done that way. And I think most digital nomads find that out after a while. They realize they need to move more slowly and rent an apartment for a month or two, not just like be bouncing from city to city and staying in guest houses. Other than tips and stories on how to live a better life for half the price, have you heard from the community of Americans overseas about other issues that they have living abroad? Sure. I belong to a few Facebook groups, and these days those have kind of become the de facto place to 
ask questions or gripe or, you know, bring up concerns, uh, whatever the case may be. There's a few on expats living in Mexico that I hang out on and every once in a while answer and help people out. I think you have the same concerns in any foreign country, people just dealing with culture and customs and how to get residency and where to buy this or that, where to find somebody to do work on their house, all those kinds of things. It's mostly adjustment oriented. When you live in the United States, you've been there your whole life. You kind of know how everything works and how to get things done. Then when you move to a new country, you basically have to start over again. And you've got the language barrier on top of it. At least Spanish is fairly easy to learn and a lot of people know it. They at least have a basic understanding. It would be really tough, I think, if you moved to like the Czech Republic or Bulgaria or Georgia or somewhere where it's acrylic alphabet and completely different language, no words in common. ACA advocates to Congress and the administration on behalf of Americans overseas on a wide variety of issues like citizenship, taxation, et cetera, et cetera. What are the issues for Americans living in Mexico, Central America, or South America with relation to U.S. policy and law? Are they different from the community at large? For example, one of the things I see older Americans living in Mexico complain about a lot is they can't use Medicare here. That's just not the way it's set up. You have to go back to the U.S. So a lot of times people are traveling back to the United States to get some kind of surgery done. And really they're spending three or four times more. They're costing the U.S. government three or four times more than if they got the work done in Mexico. And it would be of equal or better quality if they got it done in Mexico, but they're not able to do that. So that's something that I see come up a lot. I'm not old enough to tap into that system, so it hasn't been a, an issue for me. And frankly, if you pay out of pocket in Mexico, it's not going to cost you that much. I mean, you could go in with your credit card and be fine, probably, for knee surgery even. It is an issue. They complain that they've paid into the system their whole life, and now they can't use it unless they return to the States. Otherwise, I mean, taxation, you're always going to have complaints about taxation, no matter what the policy is and where people are. Americans still have to keep filing, which some people get irked about that because they're not making any money. Why do I have to keep filing? Or they're making money from abroad and it just gets rules in there you have to follow. And that's just the way it is. I think people are claiming the foreign income exclusion are pretty happy with the amount that they're allowed and that kind of thing. One of the things I'm seeing coming up a lot on message boards and just in discussions with other expatriates is people are starting to be quite concerned that their vote is not going to be counted, that absentee ballots are just going to be thrown out or are not going to be counted in election just because of all the voter suppression laws that have just been moving through the states, making it more difficult to vote. And there's been some public discussion of whether absentee ballots are going to be as valuable as the other actual votes that are done in person. So there is some concern about that. Do you think organizations like ACA are important for the community of Americans abroad? Yeah, we do need somebody that's looking out for us and fighting for our rights. And especially when it comes to the things I mentioned before, taxes and voting and medical situations, getting their social security checks for retirees, their deposits, not their checks anymore, I guess. All those things are important. Yeah, if we don't have anybody looking out for those issues, then it's easy to take advantage of people living overseas because they don't have as much of an organized voice. It's good to have an organized voice of some kind that's advocating. Do you think the U.S. can better engage with Americans overseas? 
Maybe. I mean, I've never heard from anyone, but I don't know if that's a bad thing. You tend to leave the U.S. because there are things about it that you, it's a greener pastures thing. You're leaving because you see greener pastures elsewhere. And that could be economic. It could be political. It could be business freedom. It could be a whole lot of reasons. I'd say a lot of people still have ties to the U.S. because they have family there, but they don't consider it their home anymore. It's their place of birth. Some people maybe would want that engagement. Some wouldn't. It just depends. I would say the majority of people here have disengaged from politics. That's part of the reason they left, so that they don't have to listen to all the bickering and the 24-hour news and the, the posturing. And I don't think there are a lot of people here that have CNN on all day or whatever news channel. There's a bit of disengagement there on purpose, so I guess it would depend on what that outreach or what that communication would be. What can you tell us about the community of Americans in Mexico, Central America, or South America? Do they tend to be retired, older, younger, entrepreneurial? It's quite a mix, but I would say there are not as many, especially in the past, there were not as many young digital nomads here as you would find maybe in Spain or Thailand or Georgia or some of these other hotspots for young entrepreneurs. I'm not really sure why that is, maybe because it's such a big country and it's so spread out and there's so many different places you can live. That started to change a bit during the pandemic because Mexico was one of the few countries these people could go when they got kicked out of where they were before, like if they were in Vietnam or Thailand or Bali or whatever, they had to leave. And so a lot of them ended up in Mexico because you could basically come for six months on a tourist visa. They're starting to crack down on that a little bit now. That's always been the case where you could come for six months, you could leave, and then you could come right back. That brought a lot of digital nomads in. They tended to gravitate to beaches, so they ended up in Playa del Carmen or Sayulita, Puerto Vallarta. Some of them ended up in Mexico City, but I don't have any in my town. I don't think I'm probably the only person doing what I'm doing. So San Miguel tends to be a lot older and Lake Chapala near Guadalajara. That's where you get older retirees and there are not many young people at all. It's kind of a different mix there. The beaches tend to be more mixed, but still have more retirees, I think, than younger people. And I'm not really sure, again, why that is the case. You would think more younger Americans, especially that have been priced out of the housing market, would look at Mexico. There's not been any kind of big flood. It's still a lot of snowbirds and retirees. I would say they're the majority. How has the COVID pandemic changed the expat community? Has it made people more or less mobile? Less. I mean, there's, it's funny to even to use that word community because there's less of a community now because people aren't getting together as much as they used to. It's just not as safe to have a party for 50 people in your house, you know. So that's where a lot of the socializing happened where I live. There's no expat hangout place. There's no bar where everybody goes or anything like that. So a lot of socializing was done in the homes. And most people have outdoor space and terraces. So it's not as dangerous as it sounds to get a bunch of people together. You can usually do it outside and it's sunny and warm here all year. So that's easy. The weather's very temperate. And you can meet at outdoor cafes and restaurants and everything. But there's a pretty defined community because nobody knows really how many of us are in our city, how many expats. It's somewhere between 400 and 800 probably, depending on the season. So it's not huge. But if you go to San Miguel, which is an hour and a half from me, San Miguel de Inde, there are 
probably 10,000 foreigners there. So it's much more of a community there. They have a chess club and pickleball club and tennis club and, you know, all these things where people get together and literary readings and all of that. So I can't speak for there. They may be more connected on a regular basis, but yeah, it's gotten weird during COVID because people are, for instance, having parties and saying, not parties, but get togethers of 10 or 20 people and saying vaccinated only, like, you're sort of ostracized if you're an anti-vaxxer and because people are scared. They want to be sure they're safe. And so that's changed a lot of things. And yeah, there's just not as much socializing, unfortunately. What are the biggest differences between living in the U.S. and in Mexico? Well, on the plus side, the U.S. is the land of convenience. You can get anything you want at any time you want within reason. You go into the supermarket, there's 40 different kinds of toothpaste and 50 different kinds of shampoo. And that's what the U.S. is all about. From a business standpoint, it's fairly easy to set up a business in the U.S., especially an online business. And you've got lots of support systems in place. You've got the Small Business Administration for loans. And there's just a good support structure there for everything. The U.S. is fairly organized. Things move quickly and efficiently for the most part. You know, don't tell people that if they're going to the division of motor vehicles, maybe, but even that's gotten better. (laughs) Yeah, I think the U.S. is just easy and efficient and convenient. When you move abroad, it's none of those things a lot of times. In Mexico, everything gets done eventually, but in its own time. And you definitely need lots of patience. You need to understand that there's a more fluid expectation of time. People say 10 o'clock, they don't really mean 10 o'clock. They mean somewhere in that basic area. So if you hire somebody to come work on your house, he's not going to show up exactly when he said he's going to, for the most part. And also you don't have as much choice and convenience and all of that. You can't order everything you want to land on your doorstep. You have to poke around and find things a little more. It gets done eventually, like I said. And on the plus side, people are not so work obsessed here. I mean, the U.S., It's a nation full of workaholics, and you don't feel that same pressure when you move to Mexico. A lot of people said they feel like there's a weight lifted off their shoulders. They're not in a competition all the time. People socialize more. Family comes first. They're outside a lot more on the streets, not holed up at home, watching TV or working. All that is different, and it's not better or worse necessarily. It's just different, and people need to adjust and make changes in their life a lot of times. Can you dive a bit more into how the healthcare system works in Mexico? Like a lot of countries, they have sort of a two-tier system. There's a public system that most Mexicans belong to, and you can use the public hospitals, you can go to the public doctors, and that's relatively free. You're going to pay for medicine, but you're only going to pay a minimal amount, like if you have a baby or something. Most foreigners tend to go through the private system because the costs are so much less than you would pay in the U.S., sometimes a tenth, literally, than you would pay. A dentist might be a fourth, or going to a specialist might be a fourth or a fifth of what you would pay. So a lot of people just pay out of pocket because they don't have a lot of healthcare issues. It's easier just to pay for it, and you can get the best doctor. You can choose whoever you want. A lot of times they'll have trained abroad and so they speak English or enough to get by anyway. What what happens if there's a catastrophe? That's where it gets complicated. What we do is we have a high deductible plan like you would have in the U.S. with 7,500 deductible or something. It's basically just for catastrophes. 
I have never used that in Mexico. I don't know if I ever will. But the second reason I have it is because it covers me internationally. If you go back to the United States for more than two weeks, you cannot rely on travel insurance. They usually have a cutoff of two weeks. So you need to have some kind of insurance that will cover you in the United States because you don't want to even be a day without insurance there because it could bankrupt you in no time. Usually people will have some kind of expat healthcare policy that covers them in their own country. And then if they are traveling back to the U.S., that covers them there as well. Because if you get it without the United States, it's about half the price because we have the most costly health insurance program in the world in the United States. So that basically doubles the cost. To people from other countries, this doesn't seem reasonable, but for an American, it does seem to me, we pay about $4,000 a year for the two of us, 4,400, something like that. And we're in our late 50s, mid 50s. That just gives you an idea of what it's going to cost. Can you tell us how people find a place to live when they're moving abroad? Well, it has gotten a little easier to find temporary housing than it used to be because of Airbnb. We always had vacation rental sites like HomeAway, VRBO, whatever, but Airbnb really sort of democratized it and opened up a lot of inventory that wasn't there before for people renting out space. You can go on there and find a place for a month or two quite easily, but you will pay a bit more than if you searched locally and it's hard to find long-term rentals that way. What a lot of people do is they will get a hotel or get an apartment rental for a week or two and then start looking with boots on the ground because this is true in a lot of Latin America. A lot of listings are not online. They're only physical. They're either in the local classifieds, which hard as it is to believe a lot of people still advertise that way here, or they just put a sign on their door and just tell their neighbors, I'm going to rent out my guest house. And they just rely on that as a way to get the word out. And so you kind of have to do a combination of things. You can use a local agency and sometimes they'll have someone who speaks English. So that's the easiest route a lot of times. Or if you're not finding what you want that way, you can just tell everybody you know that you're looking for a place. You can go into Facebook groups. A lot of rentals happen there. And then just old school feet on the ground, walking around neighborhoods and just talking to people, looking for signs. Obviously, that's easier if you speak some of the foreign language than it is if you only speak English. So if your Spanish proficiency is lousy, then it's best to entail a helper, <laughs> you know, get another expat who speaks Spanish well or find someone, hire someone willing to help you out just to make those phone calls and set those meetings up to look at places. If you want to get the best price, then look locally. Don't try to do it in advance because most of what you're going to see in advance, especially in English, is going to be vacation rentals and they're going to be priced accordingly. What resources can one use if they're thinking about moving to Mexico? Well, thankfully, this is a country where there are lots of resources because this is a well-trodden path. You're not a pioneer striking out on your own to Belarus or something. <laughs> Lots of people have moved to Mexico and documented their experiences. First of all, almost any city in Mexico you're moving to, there's probably going to be some kind of blog or resource site focused just on that city. There might even be a print publication like Yucatan Today for Merida. There is almost surely going to be some kind of Facebook group if there are more than 50 people living in that place. As far as larger general resources, there are some good books out there, of course. Just do a search on Amazon, see what's popular, see what's gotten good reviews. There's a site called Mexperience, like M-E-Xperience. 
been around forever and they have lots of resources on their site about bringing your car to Mexico, about shipping things here, all of that kind of stuff. For news, the best one is called Mexico News Daily and it's in English. It's a true news site about what's going on in Mexico, the good, bad, and ugly. And that's a really good resource to find out what's actually happening in the country from a real news standpoint, as opposed to rumors and, you know, sensationalists. And those are kind of some of the big ones. It's really kind of hard to generalize because most of the resources are not for the whole country. They're for specific places. You can drill down to the local level, but also when I was talking about Facebook, there's a group called expats in Mexico. I think there's one called living in Mexico and those kind of cover the whole country. So you can do a search on those and you can also look through the archives on those and get some good information because on a regular basis, people have been asking about where should I move if A, B, and C, I want this kind of weather, this kind of place. And it's good for narrowing down your search if you have no idea where you're going. I would also just advise on a side note, please don't move to Mexico without ever traveling to the country and spending some time here. It's really important to do a trial run and see what kind of place you like, because this is almost as diverse as the United States in terms of the geography and the culture and the number of choices for places you can move, the climate even. So do a little bit of travel around, go visit some friends. If you've got some friends that already live here and just check out the place and see what resonates with you because living in San Miguel de Allende is nothing like living in Playa del Carmen and that's nothing like living in Mexico City. Just like it would be tough to pick one place if you're a European coming to the United States, it's tough to pick a place if you're coming to Mexico. So just do it right and don't do it uh, just on impulse, especially if you're going to buy something. Wait a while before you buy something. Any final thoughts you'd like to share? One quick topical note here. I mentioned before that Mexico is starting to crack down on those 180-day visas. It makes more sense now if you are going to move here to get residency. There's temporary residency and there's permanent residency. And the temporary leads to permanent, but sometimes you can jump straight to permanent. It's not as easy now to just depend on coming here for six months and then doing it all over again. If you're a snowbird, you can probably get away with it. If you move here permanently, it's getting more difficult. So if you are going to come long-term, make sure you have your paperwork with you, where you're going to stay and have your return ticket, and that kind of thing. Thank you, Tim, for taking the time to join us today. Sure. Thanks for having me. And it was good talking with you. The American Citizens Abroad podcast is a monthly podcast that is published the second Tuesday of each month. It is edited and produced by me, Michelle, and is a product of American Citizens Abroad. You can find us on Twitter at ACA underscore podcast, on Facebook at American Citizens Abroad Podcast, or you can email us at podcast at americansabroad.org. Remember, give us a good rating on Apple Podcasts so other Americans living abroad can find us. 